You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Figueroa. I'm a uh, filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. Myself and uh, Zach Newton is my directing partner. Just finished up our first independent project on uh, legendary filmmaker John Millian. You have been really kind of involved with Kevin Smith. How did that kind of come about? Uh, Zach, who's my, he's been my collaborator for, for uh, many years, he was actually working with Kevin for a while on, uh, what was it, uh, Jay and Silent Bob. And then when I moved out here from L.A., because I, I knew Zach from, from uh, that's another story, actually, I'll tell you. We, uh, Zach and I met at a, at a strip club. I used, to, I used to run a strip club, and I also was one of the DJs. And his post as a bouncer was right next to my station, and we used to just sit there and bullshit about movies all day long and talk about wanting to come back to L.A. And cause he was an actor also doing uh, some acting stuff first and kind of make a run at the business. So he came over here and started working with Kevin, on a Jay and Silent Bob, and I came shortly after that and basically couch surfed on Zach's couch, and he got in, he hooked me up with a, a job on the, as a post PA on Jersey Girl. So then we had like a little thing there. That's where that's where Kevin Smith uh, relationship kind of developed, at least for me, anyways, uh, was on Jersey Girl, and after that was you know the thought of doing these uh, documentaries, and we can get into that going into specific on um, um, uh, working with Kevin as a DJ. At a strip club, can you do me a favor and welcome Heather to the stage? Oh my God, you can do this to me. Yeah. All right, Jenna, come to the stage next. Uh, the beautiful lady, the one and only Heather. Make sure you tip her well. Make sure you tip her good, Jim. And don't forget, these girls work on your tips and tips alone. Dick, beef, don't be cheap. Treat them right. At Heather. <laughs> nice, wonderful. It's been a while, man. I, I could. I was a little rough around the edges, but it's been a while. How did you kind of get into the filmmaking thing, and what was it like? doing the the work that you did with Smith. I, I will get to John Milius at some point, I swear, but some of these uh, documentaries that you've worked on, you know, the Too Fat for 40 and everything, I imagine they laid a groundwork for you for how you proceeded. Well, you know, those actually came a little later. Uh, the stand-up stuff, uh, what would be considered the evening with with Kevin, we, we came on and started the third one. We did the third one, and after that we did two more. I'm trying to remember here. But the way it all started actually was, you know, when the Clerks 10 anniversary uh, edition was coming out, they wanted to do this big three-disc package with Miramax. I think it was still Miramax time, not Weinstein Company. And uh, a guy that we worked on post-production was uh, one of the uh, associate producers or someone uh, on Jersey Girl. He was going to do a feature-length documentary on the story of Clerks. And at that time, you know, Zach was like uh, the post coordinator and I was the post PA in the office. And he goes, hey, guys, you guys want to help me do this documentary? And we're like, we've never done anything like this before. You know, you always come into this industry thinking like, I want to make movies and fictional movies, et cetera, and scripted stuff. And documentary wasn't really the first choice for us. But, you know, in this town, you know, being competitive and, you know, you don't pass up on a job, you say, yeah, let's this, this, this do it, but I really don't know what you are expecting of me. And he goes, okay, Joe, you're going to learn how to do camera, learn everything about this camera. Zach, you're going to do sound, and you're both going to do lighting. And uh, Dave Klein, who was uh, Kevin Smith's uh, DP, cinematographer, he gave us a quick crash course lesson in lighting, and then we were off and running. And, I, I, you know, it's been a while, so I think we shot like 300-plus hours, like in three weeks back and forth to Washington, New Jersey, New York. And, and for us, we always looked at it like our film school because both of us didn't, didn't uh, do a film program. And even Kevin goes, he goes, well, you guys sure aren't going to be passing around coffee or working in the office anymore. You guys are legitimate filmmakers now. And that was kind of like a kick in the ass for us. We were all kind of stoked about, about that, to hear that, to hear someone like Kevin go, guys, you know, you guys are, that was your film school. You guys are going to want to do a little more. So then our big idea from there, I know this is a long answer, but since, you know, I always say we, we've worked with Kevin for so long that you ask one question and we answer it three hours. To use genius for that. 
But, you know, we, Zach and I decided, like, hey, you know, there's always these behind-the-scenes featurettes on the discs. And I know Kevin is real heavy on, like, bonus material for his, for his movies and stuff like that. So, you know, our approach was, instead of doing the 15-minute featurette and the little making of the movie, why don't we follow, chronicle the entire process of the movie, you know, from basically conception all the way to release. So we did that with uh, Clerks 2, and it worked out really well. And, and we also did like 70-something three-minute webisodes like in real time as the movie was being filmed. And people were actually being able to experience the movie being made literally as the movie was being made. Because we would shoot footage, edit it, load it up within a day and a half. It was like a quick turnaround, these little diaries, you can say, that, that, that allowed the, his fans to kind of really experience that feeling. And, and, and aside from that, we did a complete one-off feature-length documentary on uh, on Quirks 2. And then from there, you know, he wanted us to do a retrospect on, on Chasing Amy. And then we did... Um, uh, Zach came here to make a porno, and then, but it was always like these feature-length docs. We thought the idea was, hey man, let's just really dig into the real making of the movie, not just these little featurettes that you get on on the back of the desk, you know. Mm-hmm. And Kevin being heavy on uh, heavy presence, his heavy presence online was like we always wanted to make these webisodes along with the DVD, along with the with the the documentary. So finally, when the DVD would come out, it was it was pretty heavy as far as packaging. You know, there's a lot of extra material on it, which always made a, a good sell. Tell me a little bit about. Uh, Spoilers with Kevin Smith. I'm not familiar with that one. Spoilers was a uh, project that Zach and I did with Kevin Smith a couple summers ago. It was a movie review show. And the really cool thing about that show, and it was for Hulu. It was a Hulu original project. The really cool thing about that show was it was basically to try to get... It was, obviously, it's called spoilers, so if, if we, we, we had to keep it as organic as possible, meaning we would shoot the episode on a Friday evening. We'd take a live audience Friday afternoon when the, when the big blockbuster movie would release. We'd bring them back into the studio. We'd do the show. They'd talk about the movie. Literally, by the time we finished all the segments of the show, we would start editing, loading up all the footage that night, edit the entire next day. Kevin would come and finalize the cut later that day, which was Saturday night, and then it would be loaded up Sunday to run first thing in the morning, East Coast time, uh, on Monday morning. So there was like a 24-hour turnaround for that whole show. I don't think it had ever been done in that kind of format. But it was fun, you know. We had a couple of segments where Kevin would review uh, a Criterion movie episode for one of the segments. We had Ralph Garman, who he does uh, one of his podcasts with, do this really cool uh, Dr. Something he was where he would introduce these animated things they took from Kevin's podcast. And um, then we had Jamie Hughes being Jamie Hughes, you know, doing his, his thing, you know. Um, it was fun. It was, it, was a, it was a cool show. For the, the, the evening with, you know, we did uh, two for Epic, two Fat for 40, and uh, Kevin Smith, Burn in Hell. And then we did one for Weinstein Company, which was uh, a three evening with Kevin Smith, which was the third edition of that. And those are, those are always fun because we shoot live. It's a totally different experience, and there's really no second takes. And Kevin is notorious for just these seven-hour shows. Okay, so you're sitting there recording live for seven hours without a break and without any redos. It's a challenge, but it's actually kind of fun. I really enjoy working on those. Well, it's got to be such a an exercise in editing afterwards. Zach edited all of our documentaries, and he also edited all of the uh, evening with, um, and he also edited Milius. So, you know, Zach, Zach has been a uh, 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 the, the editing uh, guru for all these projects that we've had. I think he's put his editing uh, shoes on the on the shelf for a little while. I think Milius kind of killed him. It's a five year project, but you know it was it was well worth it. So yeah, tell me how did Milius kind of come about? Like I said, when 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 we were working with Kevin, we really wanted to do another project, not just uh, make enough documentary of a movie. So we wanted to take on another project. And so we're kind of looking for a story here. And, and our friend Ken Plume, who used to work for IGN, he's right for IGN, had done this really extensive interview with John Milius years ago. And he loaned us the transcripts of, the, of, of that interview. And he was telling us a little about the guy. And we knew who John Milius was, but really didn't know a lot of who John Milius was as far as his character, his personality some of these wacky things that he's done. And funny thing is, we would refer to Milius as the, jokingly, as the uh, Forrest Gump of Hollywood because really he had his hand in a lot of shit. And he's, he's, he's had his influence in a lot of people's careers. And it was really amazing. So we read that, we're like, hmm, wow, this is just kind of a fascinating dude. Aside from his body of work, what I was really attracted to was this dude's personality and this dude's 
like larger than life character. And uh, so Ken, but why can't you get a meeting with you guys if you guys wanted to pitch him this this idea for a documentary? So we're like, yeah, why not, you know? And then Ken calls, maybe a couple weeks later, he goes, hey, so uh, can you guys be at the office this day? Millius is coming down. Like, what? <laughs> John Millius is going to come to us, you know? And uh, sure enough, he came to our office, and Zach, Zach and I were kind of rehearsing our pitch, like two little geeks, you know, like, this is what we're going to say, this is how we're going to sell it. And uh, none of that worked out. We just threw it out the window because five minutes after speaking with John, he puts you at ease, and he's like this big figure with this booming voice, but the first thing he does is kind of joke with you because he has a big smile of his and kind of put put it at ease. So what turned out to be what we expected to be like a half hour meet and greet, we're going to pitch on this idea, turned out to be like a six hour conversation of John Mills just hanging out with us. And we're like, this dude is amazing. He just will not stop talking. This is going to be awesome. And uh, so, yeah, so we pitched him the idea. He was all for it. He was on board 100%. He loved it. He only had two conditions, and at that time, they seemed very reasonable. And then later, come to find out later that he was pulling our leg a little bit, but <laughs> one of the conditions was uh, one that we tell the truth. And we're like, well, of course, thank you. We, we, we love that. He goes, I wasn't always a nice guy, but you have to tell the truth. And two, you can't show me with any kind of firearm. At that time, we're like, okay, yeah, that's cool. So then when we started digging into photos and getting photos from his, ex, from his ex-wife and his family, every photo, I would say 9 out of 10, he's holding, he's brandishing some kind of firearm. And we're like, well, this is not working out. I, I mean, what's happening here is like, we can't use these photos. And then at that moment, Zach and I looked at each other like, yeah, he's fucking with us. He's at home right now just laughing, going like, those two guys are going to just figure it out, you know? So we did. And of course, it wasn't an issue. He was basically just messing with us. You know, you should have given all those to Spielberg. He would have replaced them with walkie-talkies. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Actually, Spielberg had some footage that we really wanted, some video footage of, of John. And I think it was at some party at New Year's, and he's firing off his gun in the ceiling at midnight or something. It's like, oh God, we would have just killed for that footage. But it, it, you know, it's just one of those things. He was, he was. He was nice enough to give us some photos and stuff that he had, but uh, we couldn't get that footage, and understandably so, you know. It's just kind of home movies, you know. But we knew it existed, and it was out there somewhere. I can't believe the people that you got to be on tape for this. I mean, just one of the most jaw-dropping collections of directors and luminaries and stars, writers that I've seen in a documentary in a long damn time. Yeah, you know, part of part of the reason there's a number of reasons why this project took so long to make. First of all, it was an independent project and you know, that's always a challenge. An independent documentary is even a bigger challenge, you know, there's not a big payoff there sometimes for investors and stuff like that. So Zach and I were doing this on our own dime for a while. So we would try to accumulate little interviews here and there that we can get locally and not really spending so much time, not time, but money, having to travel or anything like that. Um, and originally, our, our interview list was like 15 people. We like we give these 15 people were gold. If we get like 10 of them, man, we're solid. At the end of the day, we ended up we ended up having like 65 plus interviews. That's because every time we interviewed someone, like you have to talk to so and so, you have to talk to so and so. So and so's got a story that you need to know, and blah 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 blah. And just like this chain reaction. And so you know. Part of that was trying to get people to jump on board to be part of this project. And that was a little challenging at first. So Zach and I had this little strategy where we go, let's get two famous people to commit. If we can get two big names to commit, then maybe to legitimize the project and people think it's real. It's not just two jerk-offs with a camera running around, you know, which basically what it was. But we, we wanted to make it feel like it's a legitimate project because it was still Zach and I doing it on our own. And then um, we uh, we were lucky enough to lock down Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was still governor and George Lucas on the same weekend. So that, that strategy really worked out well because now when we would send out these interview requests to these you know other people, their people would say, well, who else is participating? Who's in it? Is John Millius on board? Like, yes, yes, yes. And now we've got this person, that person, and we've got this other person committed. And it kind of gave the project some steam and some legs. We're like, oh, wow, it's a real project. So people were starting to commit. Now to schedule them took months and months and months, like Scorsese took us a little, almost two years, uh, and uh, Eastwood took us almost two years, 
And so at that point, we meet, we started getting more interviews. So it meant we'd had to we had to have uh, some sort of budget to continue because we had travel expenses, et cetera, you know, because so many people were out of state. And at that moment, Scott Mosier, which was Kevin Smith's longtime producer, came on as our executive. And he goes, hey, guys, let's really put the, metal, the pedal to the metal here and let's make this happen. And he went out and found us a, 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 some more producers, Haven Entertainment, and they went out and helped us out with uh, getting some financing. And it kind of like let us really concentrate solely on this project. But yet it was still a little challenge to get all those people because... As you can as you can imagine, their schedules are just kind of all over the place. And, and uh, but we were lucky enough to really get those people. And we weren't just getting people because they were famous. They literally all had something to say about John, you know. And to us, it wasn't like let's just fill it with a bunch of famous people. Like no, John knows these people personally, and they have something personal to say about millions, which was really kind of awesome. And as two guys who love film and, and, and cinema and, and just kind of this industry, you can imagine sitting in front of some of these people going like, I never imagined sitting in front of Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and, you know, action stars like Schwarzenegger. I mean, you're, you're, you're a fan at heart, you know, and you gotta, you gotta keep your cool. You know, my favorite definitely is, is Scorsese. And that was one of the times I'm telling Zach, I'm, I'm for sure doing this fucking interview. I'm talking to him, you know, cause we would do that every once in a while. It's like, we were just basically flip a coin of who's going to do the interview because we were like a two man band, you know? And, and when we did this, when we did the setup, either he did the interview or I did the interview. And then, but there was only two occasions where we're like, I'm definitely doing this one. And Zach's like, okay, I'm definitely doing the other. And his was Steven Spielberg and mine was Scorsese. So, you know, I'm I like I like gangster flicks and he likes you know nerdy movies. That that's kind of like one of the reasons why many reasons why it kind of did take a while to to complete. Yeah, you said it took five years. So you started what two thousand eight with this to have it out last year? Yeah, something like that. But the project was also put on a shelf for like eight nine months because of John Stroke. But I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if if you probably read it somewhere, but we never once shot an interview with John. The week before we went to, we were in New Jersey working on one of Kevin's shows, one of those live shows we were talking about earlier. And from there, we we're going to drive up to upstate to shoot our first interview with John and start spending time with him on camera because we, we really wanted to shoot a bunch of other stuff first and then go talk to him. We want to compile all these stories and then just have him be this vehicle to, to back them all up. And they, they called us and say, hey, guys, just it's canceled. Uh, we'll give you guys a call in a few days and let you know what's going on. We're like, okay, then we can do turned out he had a stroke and we're like oh shit and at that point we're like well what are we going to do we put the we put the project on the shelf for a while and then um john finally came out to to santa monica to, to continue some of his rehab and we had lunch with him and and we talked to him and his family they were at lunch and took him by the beach of course and uh he said yes he wanted us to continue you know and his family wanted us to continue they thought it was important and when, when we asked John, actually, he just had a big smile on his face and he raised up his hand and pulled out his index finger and started squeezing the imaginary gun like with his trigger finger. Like, yes, yes, yes. So we took, we, we took that as a green light to go ahead and move forward. And so we did. So that was a big gap in between also, you know, John falling ill. We really didn't know if we were going to continue or not. But luckily we were able to because I think it's important for that story to be told, you know, because... I mean, a lot of people don't realize who John was and what he's contributed to 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 the industry. You know, I'm glad I'm I'm so glad that we were able to express that. You know, what was some of the most surprising stuff that you found out about Milius while you're making the documentary? You know, what what, what I really came to admire about John throughout this process, and it's not necessarily and, and, and it was new information to me. Was just kind of like this personality of his is very old school, and that's something I can relate to because I'm the youngest of thirty kids and I kind of come from like a throwback type of family you know like old school my, my dad was a lot older than me you know and and, and 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 it just reminds me of like it just reminds me of that throwback mentality of when you shake someone's hand it means something when you when you give your word you know you gotta stand by it and that's the way John was and I go man he's, he's for real he, he doesn't just say this shit sometimes he actually he, he actually is that guy you know he's real He's like a real loyal dude, and and and, and he's he, and he's like, can you imagine writing writing the Indianapolis speech for Jaws over the telephone because Steven Spielberg asked him for a favor? 
Never ask them how much is it going to cost. Never ask them how much are you going to pay me. You're just like, yeah, you're my buddy. I'll do this because we're friends. I love that. You know, I love, I love that. You know, someone is able to just be that guy. You don't get that kind of those kind of people in Hollywood anymore. I mean, it's impossible. You got to go to 12 different agents before you can you can get a uh, an answer from someone. You know, and uh, and uh, so so what I learned through the process was that John Milius is, is hopefully what we were able to portray was like this really cool, loyal, gentle fucking bear that at the same time can be like this big, loud, obnoxious dude who likes to get a rise out of people. But at the end of the day, you know, he, he knows what loyalty is with friends and stuff like that. And I, and I can really respect that. He's, he's a throwback dude, the last, in my opinion, of the old Hollywood types, you know, the peck and paws and you know, those old school filmmakers, they just don't exist anymore, you know. He really has that that sense and aura of, of, of that old old Hollywood, which I really like. That whole Milius persona, that the the so called right winger, is that a reflection of who he really is? Is that a reaction to who he was surrounded with when he was younger? Or is it just the character that he's playing? You know, that's a that's an excellent question. It really is. Because if you think about this you just said, is it because of people we grew up with? Well, his his family's very conservative. You know, his father was a very conservative dude. His mother, you know, kind of like high society. But John really rebelled from that. If you really think about it, he was a more, he had more liberal. He was being a surfer, hanging around surfers, et cetera. You know, but he was also a patriot. He loved this country. He loved, he loved, uh, uh, this government and 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 he loved his guns and a lot of things that would be considered right wing conservative views, but yet he also had all these left side libertarian views and and so so that's a really hard question to answer because I feel like he's in the middle. He's not so right or left. He really has a good sense of both sides because both sides have something constructed to say. And 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 and, and uh, Walter Murch says it best in the in the documentary. He says, you know, that that John told him one day. He goes, Hey man, I'm really a hippie, you know. <laughs> but he goes, I'm really a hippie. Well, the problem is the hippies wouldn't let me king, but I'm really a hippie, and that makes a lot of sense to me in in in, in a joking way. This sense that he's that he's open to both sides of the of the spectrum. He's not so so right to where a lot of people have pigeonholed him, and I think that actually hurt his career in a lot of ways because that's the way he's perceived. Because he's gun toting and he's like he speaks out with these wacky statements sometimes or whatever the case may be. That's just the picture that, that has been painted. But I really don't feel like that is who he is 100%. I feel like he's very much in the middle of those two, those two worlds. And if you get to know him, you can see right away that, that he's, not, he, he's not one or the other. You know, he, he has an opinion on both sides. Well, he never seems to have a problem kind of holding a mirror up to the government or society or anything and kind of saying, you know, this is a reflection of you. Like Apocalypse Now, you can take that as a very critical film of the American government. And then you can also kind of say the same thing about Dirty Harry or people can take it. I, I feel very bad for Dirty Harry because of, you know, the way that Reagan kind of embraced that. But for me, it's much more of a you know, criticism of you know bureaucracy and all those things, but also having a very strong point of view as far as justice, which I I really appreciate. Well, yeah, like I was saying, I mean, it's it's all about how people perceive things. You know, someone can write something, someone can write something, and, and someone can read it and completely take it a different way, a different way as to what the writer intended, or the writer was just... And then, you, and then you also have to remember that it's entertainment. It's it's a movie. It's a character. Some people really get connected to a character like if they're a real person. Now, John's characters, you know, they have that effect because they feel like real people, but at the end of the day, you have to remember they are characters, and they are embellished dialogue. It's embellished dialogue, you know? And uh, again, it's, it's, it's how people perceive what they're hearing or what they say. Some people that John are like, yeah, Dirty Harry is my man because, you know, he's, he just, you know, does his shit. He's, he pulls out his piece and just takes care of business without asking questions first and et cetera, et cetera. And someone else look at it a totally different way, you know, like right with Red Dawn, you know, somebody looked at it as a total, totally conservative right-wing movie, and other people look at it like, no, it's just a bunch of kids protecting their shit, you know? It's how how you want to perceive that. 
I don't think John has any political agenda. He had any political agenda when he was making Red Dawn or wrote Red Dawn. I just think that it was perceived that way, maybe because of the time, because of what was happening at that time and, and, and the subject matter, that all of a sudden he got pigeonholed into that classification, which I feel is kind of like, you know, someone else's opinion. It's a movie at the end of the day. That's why I would say it's, just a, it's a movie. His personal agenda, I don't think, was to, to, to make this conservative right-wing movie. No, I, I, or, or, or I don't even think that he would, that even crossed his mind. Yeah, that's a question for John, actually, but still, that's just my opinion. Again, I perceived it completely different from some people. When I saw a movie as a kid, I'm going like, yeah, man, if anybody comes in my town and they start taking my shit, I'm going to protect my shit. As simple as that. And, and, and it's, it, it was, it, that's the way I took it as a kid. And uh, some people looked at it completely different. Like, there's this big political agenda behind it. I don't think that was the case. Now, we've talked a little bit about some of the people that you've had in the documentary that you got interviews with. Who were some of the folks that you tried to get that you were unable to? There were a few people here and there that, that we tried to get. And I'm trying to remember the big ones because I know there was a couple a couple of uh, friends of his and stuff like that. And, you know, no one would know their names, but... If you want, like, this like famous person that was like, whoa, we need to get this person. There was really, to be honest with you, only, like, two people that didn't make the list. And one was because, one was Quentin Tarantino. And and I think he was confused. He confused our documentary with uh, Hollywood Don't Surf because he had done that one already. Because when we requested the interview, he goes, I already did the Millius documentary. Like, no, 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 no. You did Hollywood Don't Surf. This is, I think, strictly on Milius. So he, he had agreed to do it, but then he got caught up with Django, and then I know his editor had uh, suddenly passed away from some uh, fortunate accident, so it, the timing just wasn't there. We had to deliver to South by Southwest premiere, like we literally delivered a week before we, we premiered. That's when we finished the movie. So the time the timing wasn't there, and uh, but I always feel like, I always feel like if we do a DVD package, I want to do like this bonus, this bonus, uh, interview uh with quentin because quentin to me is like has a lot of john milius in him you know everyone always says that quentin talks his characters talk like people talk and regular people talk and and, and kind of john had that same feeling also you know and, and and quentin is a huge fan of john milius and he has this awesome story about john and i want to get it out there to to, 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 to the public it has to be heard you know i don't want to say it because i'll, I'll butcher it and I'll paraphrase it, you know, hopefully when it comes out, you know, it, 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 it's told by the person, you know, who actually experienced it, which is an awesome, awesome story. And the other guy was uh, Sean Connery. Sean Connery, he, we got in touch with his people and, and he said, yes, his people said he wants to do it. It's a matter of where he's going to be. He's either going to be in Scotland or the Bahamas. And literally, this is what it is. And literally, he'll just call you like a couple of days in advance. Like, okay. And and every once in a while, we get a phone call saying like, uh, Mr. Connery still would like to do this. Are you guys still doing the project? Like, yeah. Uh, okay, he might be in the Bahamas this week. We'll let you know. And it has never worked out. I mean, I, I know he was ill for a little while. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it didn't work out. But to get Sean Connery in a documentary, uh, it would, would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. But everyone else was happy to participate. That whole story that you tell or that gets told about um, Hunt for Red October and yeah. getting Milius to write that. Oh, so good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I love how, you know, when uh, Mace Newfield tells that story, you can tell the whole time he's just smiling because he's, he's reminiscing at that time. He goes, can you believe I pulled this shit off? That's the look he gives in the, in the documentary. Like, I actually pulled this off. I had John Milius next door, Sean Connery on the phone, and I made it happen with literally, you know, without even leaving the office. If you see it again, look at his eyes and that grin on his face, like, can you fucking believe I pulled this off? That's the kind of stuff I love about, you know, movie making and Hollywood is like these backstories, like the stuff you just never know that goes on, how these things get made and how things come about, you know, it's just, it's just timing. Sometimes, you know, things are just about timing, you know? I don't know why I didn't know that Millie's had involvement with Hunt for Red October, but as that was happening, as the story was unfolding, I just thought of that end speech, the quoting of Christopher Columbus, and I was like, oh my God, that is so Milius. Oh yeah, you could just tell. If, if you could just, you know, John's, John's dialogue, is, it, it really is, it's got this poetic flow to it. You know, I always tell people like, you know, somebody can tell you to go fuck yourself, 
but if John Lewis told you to go fuck yourself, you'd probably feel good about it. <laughs> because it's going to sound so cool, you know? I like that you acknowledge the whole connection between Milius and Walter from The Big Lebowski. Did he see The Big Lebowski? What did he think of his character, himself being portrayed in the film? Oh, he loves it. Are you, are you kidding me? He loves it. He, he absolutely loves it. And you just reminded me, the other two interviews we wanted to get with the Coen brothers, and that was just... It was next to impossible. We really tried hard for those, and there's a timing thing also, or they just don't do a lot of interviews, you know? But we really tried, and we tried to get everyone that really wanted to... And some of these people, John, was asking us, like, talk to these guys, you know, call this guy, and they'll tell you a good story, you know? And, uh, but yeah, the the, uh, the, the, the Big Lebowski, you know, it's one of those things where, where, we, where at the end we had to squeeze it in, can imagine the stuff that we had to cut out. That's why the end credits were kind of like, let's give some, let's give some more nuggets here. And we really wanted to show a few other things that, you know, people can kind of like take with them because we, we couldn't tell the whole story, you know, because, you know, we already had a six hour documentary. So, so we started sneaking some nuggets towards the end, but yeah, that whole big Lebowski thing, John loves it. He goes, yeah, yeah. He's like, he just laughs. He had a big laugh at his. He goes, yep. That's him, pretty much. And his kids are like, yep, that's him. <laughs> Does he uh, roll on Shabbos? Oh, <laughs> that's funny. He's Jewish. I don't know, I never asked him. Obviously, the first time I saw Big Lebowski, I had no idea. But as soon as somebody said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I can really see that. And then even John's picture on IMDb, he looks like Walter. You know, you oh, can yeah. put the two side by side. This is one of the questions I would have loved to ask one of the Coen brothers. It's like, I, And I thought I read this somewhere for some reason. Maybe I'm wrong. It's been so long, but... Um, I think they actually asked him to be in the movie. I don't know if it was Big Lebowski or another movie. And John was like, no, I'm not an actor, really. I don't really want to do this. And he didn't do it at the time. But I'm not 100% if it was Lebowski or another movie, to be honest with you. But I know I know that Collins love this guy, you know. What's well, not the love? I mean, John, John's just a, a teddy bear with an AK-47, as we say, or, or uh, Randall Kleiser says in our documentary. <laughs> What's not to love about that? Hey, what are your thoughts on Conan the Barbarian? Which one? The first one. Uh, a John version? Yeah. I think it's great. I think it holds. I, I think it's timeless. You know, someone else just asked me earlier. I was in another interview, and they they're like, they, they they didn't know that Oliver Stone had written an early draft of that. You know, and then they 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 were surprised to hear that in the documentary. And they're like, really? You know, and uh, and I always say I would have loved it to have read Oliver's version. But, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, John's version is the one that was produced. And and uh, I feel that, um, you know, it's timeless. It, it really is. You can watch it today and it doesn't seem cheesy or campy. It's like a fucking cool movie. You know, it, it, it holds up better than the remakes they did of the recent. I mean, I, I think so. And I love I love how John says he would have loved to do the the second and third, this trilogy of, of like this character who evolves in his thinking and, and, and uh, how he soaks and et cetera, just really humanizes Conan into this character by the third, by the third uh, movie. That would have been awesome, but he just never got that opportunity, you know, for what reason? Who knows, man? So much stuff happens in this town that you just really don't know why things happen the way they do when you, when you're, when you think, why not get the, the most talented writer to do it, you know? Yeah, I've got Stone's version around here somewhere, but it's not that because uh, somebody says that it was like four hours long or whatever. It would have been really long, but I don't know which draft this was. So it was kind of cut down to a more manageable length. I wasn't aware until just a few years ago about the whole Stone thing, but it totally makes sense. And to, to have those two guys, and I was so glad to hear, you know, it doesn't feel like Stone has completely buried that hatchet, but I was glad that he was on camera and talking about it. Yeah, you can kind of get the sense that, you know, it kind of, it's not irked him, but like, you know, he still holds a little bit of like, huh, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. But I'll tell you this, one thing I love about Oliver's interview is that he was very candid about everything. And I love that, that he was honest and he wasn't just kind of so like, here's a soundbite or I'm not, I'm not going to say what I don't really want to say. Man, he was so open and honest. I was like, this is awesome. Because, and I think I found a respect for John and his love for John, because he really does, you know, uh, admire John and, and like, you know, respect his work and et cetera. But, you know, I did kind of get that feeling too, especially, and it does kind of come across in the film that way, in the documentary, like, you know, he might be a little, you know, upset about something, but who knows what that something is. It could be something completely different, has nothing to do with, with uh, you know, why they took John's over his, you know, 
who knows? I love that the people that you're talking to in the documentary, almost all of them are to a point in their career where, you know, for lack of a better term, they they don't give a fuck anymore. They are successful. Martin Scorsese, he's going to tell you what's on his mind. Clint Eastwood obviously has no problem telling you what is on his mind. So it was great to, to hear these very candid and yeah. open discussions. Yeah, because there's not one of them going to have – not one of them is going to sit back and go like, if I say this, is it going to hurt my career? <laughs> no, they're just going to be honest because their careers are solidified already and there's 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 nothing they can say – uh, you know, maybe there is a few things I can say, but but uh, but I get where you're coming from, and it does and it it does make a lot of sense because it does come across in that. That's one of the things that a lot of people tell us, like, man, the way all these people talk so candidly and just kind of like freely, it's pretty awesome. Like, yeah, imagine sitting in front of them, you know, and, and just going like, holy crap, you know, you just. It, it, it was a little surreal sometimes. It, it really was, but that's part of the, that was part of the, the, the that was a fun part of doing this. Like, hey, today we get to go interview Scorsese. Next week we're going to go do this guy. And it's like, do you realize that these are all the cool people that make movies that made movies for the last I don't know thirty years that we grew up with? And it's insane. It's insane. If anything comes out of this project, is the fact that you know we've got we got to speak to some of the most influential people this industry will ever have in the history of this industry. Insane. So how has the documentary been received? And and I know you said you played at South by Southwest. Where else did it play? Uh, we premiered at South by Southwest. It was received beautifully, you know. Uh, we, we, we got distribution right away with uh, Epics uh, Network, E-P-I-X. And um, they picked it up for the U.S., and uh, Studio Canal picked us um, um, Studio Canal picked us up for UK, and I think we we also uh, we're also playing in Latin America, HBO Latin America, uh, a few other markets going on right now. Uh, we, we we played at the Spain Festival, the Seedkiss Festival in Spain. We won Best Documentary there. We played Telluride um, of last year, this last December. I believe it was December. Um, uh, tell you right. We also oh London Festival. We premiered at London Film Festival, and I played a few other festivals. I think played Brazil, and you know, so it's played um, quite a few festivals, and um, it's always it's been received really well. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, the reviews we've gotten have been so like you know really well received that um you know that every time we get one, it's like okay or like. One that's got some negative stuff to say, but at the end of the at the end of the review, they're like, "But I recommend you should watch it." I'm like, "What? Well, that's, that's that works for me, you know. You can't please everybody, but it's not about it's not really about the reviews for me, anyways. To me, it's always been about you know telling this story about this dude because he has cemented himself in, in, in the history of Hollywood and. One of the reasons, one of the early reasons why we decided to finally do this project was we would ask people, do you know who John Milius is? And they're like, no. Do you know who George Lucas is? Yeah. How about Coppola? Yes. How about Spielberg? Yes. How about Scorsese? Yes. Would you realize that all these dudes kind of came up at the same time and y'all looked at John like he was the most amazing storyteller out of all of them and he was going to be the big success? And I go, well, what has he done? And then you start rolling off some of his resume like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Well, yeah, younger filmmakers, younger... The younger generation of film fans and even older generation of film fans who didn't, who didn't know who this man was. Hopefully, this project would answer those questions and bring him into the limelight in the in, on the same table as his uh, contemporaries. You know, is there any movement on the uh, Genghis Khan project? You know, it's an active development, and to be honest with you, I don't know how far into, in, into how far they are or status of it. I know it's a project that John wants to get done. I mean, that's his passion project that he's been wanting to do that story for a long time. It's an epic script. Hopefully it will see the light of day sometime. I know John wasn't in his current condition. He still, I mean, John is doing really well as far as condition-wise. You know, he still has his challenges and stuff, but if, if that unfortunate thing didn't happen to him, his stroke, I know that that project would have been done already. Because originally the documentary, the narrative of the documentary is supposed to, was going to be like John's, one of the ideas we had basically for, for the original narrative of this documentary was going to be John's uh, journey to make Genghis Khan. This was his big comeback. He's been kind of out of the limelight for 20-something years. Nobody really kind of like knew what he's done or where he's been. And we're going to just thrust himself back into Hollywood with this big epic movie. We're going to film in China. And this was going to be our journey. Tell that story as well as tell his entire story that you basically saw in the documentary from, from uh, you know, different 
perspective from his friends and colleagues and, and et cetera. But the big part of it with this big journey was going to be like, you know, getting this movie done. In the last shot, we had this big, great idea. Like, John's going to be back in the director's chair. This beautiful shot. going to see John Young in action. He's, and he's back. Obviously, that, that, that wasn't the case, unfortunately, because of, of his condition, you know? So we had to rethink it. And to give John a voice, we had to go find these old audio tapes, old interviews, anybody that had any kind of footage of John, you know, cassette tapes that we found, and we had to paste together this 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 uh, this uh, voice for John. You know, he had to have a voice for sure, and 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 to still have it some give it some sort of narrative and flow as to who John was as a person, as a as a, as a filmmaker, and also as a as a person outside of the industry. You know, so hopefully that came across because it was it was very challenging to be honest with you, having to find all this footage and and uh, old audio tapes, and it was basically like anybody that had something was like candy for us, you know? I can't even imagine the amount of work that goes into something like that and giving a voice to somebody who doesn't have a voice at the time. Yeah, it, it, believe me, it was, it, was a, it was a challenge. It was a challenge, and um, luckily uh, some people held on to stuff because John, didn't, John himself never held on to anything. Like, as John for a photo, he's like, I don't have one. Like, wait, you don't have a photo of you and so-and-so? Like, no. But then you go to his ex-wife, and then he, who, who was really instrumental in giving us a lot of, of photos. You know, she's like, yeah, here's one, here's another, here's another, and then here's John in the backyard with his AK, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Give me that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, it's just kind of funny, you know, that's just like when you think about it, but, uh, you know, luckily people held on to stuff, old tapes that you you would never think, like the Big Wednesday tapes, Vinny Albert, who co-wrote Big Wednesday, he just randomly recorded these these meetings with the producers because he would go home and replay them and kind of like, so he could remember what the meeting was about. And he held on to these tapes. And then you hear John kind of like yelling at the producer because, you know, she wants him to hurry up on something. And that's like, that's like gold. That's like a little nugget you find, you know, you, that, that kind of stuff. You just, you, you just never think of holding on to at some point. Luckily, some of these people did and we're lucky enough to get our hands on them. So you kind of cut your teeth on DVD extras and giving the full package to films and making documentaries about, you know, films that were either coming up or, or that had already happened. What do you think of the current state of affairs where some people aren't even buying physical media anymore? Yeah, that's a good question because I've, I've, I've had this conversation numerous times with a few people and, and I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, just because there, DVD is a niche, is a, is a niche uh, market now. People want it for themselves. People, it's like buying a book, you know, and, and studios aren't really, they aren't really kind of doing that whole full DVD package anymore. Unless it's like a, a special big budget movie. But remember for, remember for, for a lot of these movies, there'd always be some sort of bonus stuff on it. With, now that we're in the digital world, that where, where is, where, where does that market go to? And, or where does that audience go to, to see the, what, what they enjoyed? Because me personally, when I buy a DVD, DVD, I would watch all the bonus stuff before I watch the movie. Just because that's what I love to see. I love to see like, you know, the behind the scenes and that's just cool because you get to be a fly on the wall and stuff. To me, it's like stuff that you don't ever like get to see. You get to see it. That's simple. So I think, I think people still want to see that. I, I feel like people still, would appreciate seeing that, but finding a, a, a vehicle for that is is definitely a uh, a challenge. You know, you still have like HBO first looks and all stuff like that, but those are always basically those featurettes that I was talking about earlier. Featurettes where you know, for all intents and purposes, man, we're just all blowing each other here on set. Everything's great. It's all great. We're all having a good time. Cut camera, and then you know, everybody's telling each other to go fuck each other. You know what I mean? It's it's it's. It's, it's, it's EPK is promoting the movie and I get it. But what we tried to do is try to try to really kind of show that part and the other part and then the part of actually making the movie and the part of like, you know, the day to day grind. That's, that's, that's what I'm drawn to. The day to day grind of like filmmaking and of anything. You, you can relate that to any part of life, you know, any, any job. When you look at it as a job and then people automatically assume, oh, making movies, these people are lucky. It's fun. Yes, on all those levels. But there's a lot of pressure involved. There's a lot of expe expectations involved. You know, there's a lot happening. And then, and then we tried to kind of show some of that also along with, you know, the, the cool parts of making the movie and the, the, the afterthoughts of making the movie and, and, and on and on and on. 
So here I go rambling again, but to answer your question, I feel like there's still a market for that. The vehicle, I don't know where that vehicle is. I'm still kind of wondering and I'm still kind of trying to figure that one out because, you know, I'd like to be a part of that vehicle still. Find a vehicle to where people can still go and watch these these behind the scenes, uh, a little meatier documentaries or, or little meatier versions of like, even if they're half hour, you know, mini docs on different movies, not just the big blockbusters, you know, the, the, the ones that are really most interesting are the little, are the smaller features, you know, cause that's where you really have to grind it out and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, and get creative on how to get stuff done. And to me, that's interesting. Uh, we're actually thinking of doing a commentary for Melius when we finally go like to our digital world of, of downloads and stuff. We want to add like a commentary. And if we do do a DVD package, which we're trying to do, but again, you know, trying to find a DVD package that makes sense, you know, in today's world, it's, it's, it's also challenging, you know. So is it cost effective for someone, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of stuff. But literally, we've got so much cut footage. You know, we got at least 10 more stories, We can 10 extra stories we could throw on the DVD. Plus, like I said, I, I want to do that Tarantino interview. And it would have so much cool shit that people weren't able to see. And then, you know, we'd do a couple commentaries, you know, some with the other, our other producers and and uh, and also with Scott Mosier, who's big on Smodcast with Kevin Smith. And, and uh, so there, there would be a lot of stuff there. And believe me, someone who comes from that world, I would love to see that happen. But the reality is, is like, if it makes sense, you know, it gets done. If it doesn't, then you just kind of go like, you got to roll with the times, you know, and that, and that kind of is a shitty, shitty part about the the, the, the way the, the business is turning. I always felt like digital media, you know, people were going to just refuse it for a while because of the quality. Uh, no, it's not about quality anymore. It's about accessibility and how quickly I can get something, you know. Why wait the two days to get the disc in the mail from Netflix when I can have it right now with the streaming? Right, exactly. And for me, I rent the disc so I can get the extras, and now they make these rental versions of things where they rip all that stuff off, so yeah. you got to buy it, which yeah. I can see good and I can see bad about that. Like, yeah. If I wanted to buy the criterion of this, I would, but I want to rent it and see what it's like or test drive it. Yeah, but for me, it's also like, you know, if, you know, wanting to wanting for people to still see that kind of stuff, you have to find, a, a, like I said, a vehicle for that, even if it's going to have to be a digital in the digital world, at least people get to see that stuff still. It doesn't die with the, it doesn't die with DVDs. You know, if DVDs are dead. I feel like the behind the scenes world is going to die with it, and people are just going to and people are just going to get accustomed to not seeing it, whereas they did before back in the VHS days. You know, where you just got the movie and that was it. You know, it seems like things are going to going backwards with at the same time progressing in in certain ways. It's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a weird funky balance that hasn't been reached yet. Yeah, I mean that was such a. You know, the reason to switch over to DVD, it was for the bonus scenes, the commentaries, the behind-the-scenes stuff. So I don't want to say it's a bait-and-switch, but obviously we got into that world for one reason, and now the world is kind of moving away from us almost. got to find a way for it to make sense to everybody. To invest in having crews out there, you know, not just in the Transformer movies or something, you know, or the big, you know blockbuster movies where they where they have somebody doing that but you know to invest in like even a lot of the other smaller productions there the, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there so hopefully one day that that is still come back around to how it was before to find a way for people to be able to, to to see it that's all i grew up around here my grandfather took me to fish off that island right over there There is one question you haven't asked me yet. Why? Well, I figured you would tell me when you were ready. Now, there are those who believe we should attack the United States first. Settle everything in one moment. Red October was built for that purpose. When the dust settles from this, there's going to be hell to pay in Moscow. Uh, perhaps maybe some good will come from it. A little revolution now and then is a healthy thing, don't you think? Do you still like to fish, Ryan? Mm-hmm. There's a river not unlike this one near Vilnius where my grandfather taught me to fish. And the sea will grant each man new hope. Asleep 
brings dreams of home. Christopher Columbus. Welcome to the new world, sir.